Would you join me this morning in the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 54, the book of Isaiah chapter 54. And I want to read verses 1 through 4, Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 4. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the ones of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings and spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your descendants will possess nations and they will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. <clears throat> I really want to lift up particularly verse 2 and verse 3 as we center around the theme to which we've embraced for the year's journey, the year of the stretch. I want to borrow from Isaiah's picture of Israel's growth after exile the metaphor here in the tent construction and the tent enlargement and reference it to the theme of stretching. So listen to what the prophet says. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings and spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs for you will spread abroad to the left and to the right and your descendants will possess nations and they will resettle the desolate cities. You're going to need more room for what I have. That's the title I want to work under in this passage. But I discovered something as I was working through this passage and I perhaps may have been a bit premature to arrive at chapter 54 as the base of what I wanted to say instead of utilizing the words of chapter 52. So what I'm going to try to do is to go back to 52 and 54, Isaiah 54, 1 through 4, is certainly going to be our base, but there's a preliminary expectation in chapter 52 that I want us to really concentrate on this morning, and I'm going to try to lift that up in the framework of encouraging us to see how God is likewise calling us to enlarge our space, to stretch out our tents, to strengthen the cords that hold us and likewise to dig deeper with the pegs that sustain us. Success has become a rather controversial word in the Christian context. Neither success nor the modern term that we use prosperity is really out of the place of Christian composition if you read scripture thoroughly. In fact, a holistic life of success and prosperity in body, soul, and spirit 
And likewise, in the possessions to which we hold is extremely in line, or should I better say, within the expectations of sacred scripture. I pray that in all aspects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers, 3 John 2. Let the word or let the Lord be magnified for God takes pleasure in the prosperity, the success, the productivity of his servants, Psalm 35, 27. And then Job says that if you obey and serve God, you will spend your days in prosperity and your years in plentiness. Job 36 and 11. Prosperity and success really means, if you think about the term, and if you look at the term as it's used in the context of scripture, it really means having enough of God's provision to complete his instruction, his calling upon your life. When God provides everything that you need to follow through on the calling on the assignment that God has laid to your life. I think that we've got to come to a space in our own mental composition where we've got to change our mindset and to develop the mentality to A, envy lack. To envy lack. Let's just be honest, no one in this room enjoys living without or enjoys having less than. No one in this room, I would argue, likes to travel down the road of lack, particularly with any consistency. In fact, when we talk about lack, we are really announcing deficiency. We are announcing that there's a shortage and who likes to have more month than Monday? Who likes to come up short at the end of every month? So I think in order to defeat that, you've got to develop a envy of lack. You've got to begin to develop a hatred for being and having a lackness in your life. And that's just not monetary, but in every aspect, particularly when we talk about the spirituality of your walk with God, you have to envy not having what you know you can have with God. I have to envy not having the connection that I know that I can have. And I have to envy knowing that God has much more and that God wants to use me for his glory and God has an assignment and I'm not fulfilling that assignment. I have to envy the fact that I'm not being all that God designed me to be. So I have to learn to envy lack. But not just envy lack, I have to learn in my mentality to expect much. Not just envy and lack, but to expect much. In other words, I am announcing capacity. I am really saying that I want the maximum that God has to offer, that life has to offer. I want the maximum. In the Christian context, I don't know why, and I do think that there is some interference, or should I say some interjection of historical Criticism in reference to why the church should be more along the lines of an asceticism life and having less, which means that you're more spiritual, which is not true at all. I don't know about you, but I can worship God a whole lot better with zeros and some other numbers ahead of the zeros in my account than all zeros across the account. I can worship God a whole lot better in the house instead of living outside of a house. So this idea, this mentality that having lack, having shortage, having little means that we have more spirituality, that's a fallacy. But instead, I should expect much. I should have the expectation 
that God has much more for me. And not just the provision of that which is material, but even the spiritual nature, the power, the anointing, the word, the wisdom. God has so much more to give me, but it rarely will come if I don't have an expectation to receive it. And here I think that the suggestion is that we need to have a capacity to recognize that we want the maximum that God has to give unto us. And even what makes that suggestion even so minimum is that we don't know what the maximum is when it comes to the grace and favor of God. God's capacity cannot be measured because how can you measure for someone who has endless grace and endless mercy an endless provision, an endless in terms of time. So whatever that means in terms of who I am, that's what I want from God. I need to have an envy of lack and I need to have an expectation of much, but then I need to understand in my mindset that I need to not be afraid of enjoying abundance. That it's all right to have more than enough. In other words, I am announcing sufficiency. Initially, I'm saying that I envy lack because that's deficiency. I'm saying that I'm expecting much because that's capacity. But now I'm saying I'm willing to enjoy, I've got to get a mindset to enjoy abundance because that is sufficiency. When I have more than enough, then I should be without question willing to share with those who have not enough because that makes us all having plenty enough because God has given me more that the cup might spill over and others might enjoy the favor of grace. That's a mentality in church that for some reason has become criticized by many. In fact, I'm always amazed that people are extremely quick, extremely quick to quote Matthew 6, 19 through 24. You know the passage. When Jesus says, don't build treasures up on, up on the earth where moth and rust come in, destroy them, where thieves come and steal them, but instead build treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor thieves or anyone of that nature can get in. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. People are quick to quote that, quick to quote that passage which means that your, your, your direction, your desire, your hunger should have nothing in terms of material pro, uh, gain or material progress. really shouldn't be about that. Just, just have the minimum. Just as long as you got a car, be happy. But they never want to quote Proverbs 13, 22. 13.22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the righteous. Don't nobody talk about that. In other words, I believe God says there's a balance between have and the have not and there's a balance between uh, gaining the material in the earth and then providing that or sustaining that which is reserved in glory. There's a balance between the two. Nobody ever works with Proverbs 13, 23. Here's a good verse. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. In other words, I believe God is saying there's plenty in the earth that I've given, but unfortunately, you have injustice that robs people of experiencing the potential of abundance. We don't want to talk about that. Folk don't understand that when you talk about God's provision, it's not merely God raining down something without you doing something. It's a participation. God will open the door, but faith without works is dead. And unfortunately, the church, because of outside criticism, 
has often misappropriated defining the church and the word abundance in her context. It's to a point that folks in church are ashamed of having more than enough. They work to hide it that someone doesn't see that they've been favored by God or that God through their wise stewardship has been blessed. I'm always puzzled by people who get angry uh, because particularly in the realm of pastoring that they choose to live a certain lifestyle and people freak out and saying that's robbing the church. Well, my question is, if that person receives a salary from the church and that person does whatever they want to do with their money and they're able to afford it, what's the problem? And the other thing is, you don't know if they have more streams of income outside of the church. We have adopted a strange understanding of success and prosperity in church, and maybe it's because we've permitted certain particularities of various ministries to paint the picture for us of what that really means. And it doesn't always mean the abundance of materialism. Sometimes it means the spirit of being a philanthropist, being able to supply what others cannot and yet meeting the needs of those who cannot meet the needs for themselves. We've misunderstood what that meant. And while at the same time, those who are non-Christians have no problem enjoying the abundance of life. God says, I've given you all things, here it is, all things to richly enjoy. Now, I don't know about you what you think that may mean, but for me and my house, everything that I get, I'm going to enjoy it to the fullest. I'm not going to allow your opinion of what I have to reduce my enjoyment of what I get. And I'm not going to hate on you on what you have. And I hope it doesn't reduce yourself of enjoying what you have. In fact, I'm going to celebrate with you because I just got a gut feeling. If I praise God for what you got in return, God's going to open up some doors for me. And I can celebrate the fullness of what God provides. Because for me, God is always telling me if you are walking in obedience to my word and if you trust me, what I have to give you, you don't even have enough room right now to contain it. That's right. That's right. In fact, you're going to need more room than what you got right now to enjoy what I have for you. But there's a couple of things I want to drop in your spirit that I think we want to understand before I get to this text. Here's the first thing. Number one, you have to also remember that when we talk about prosperity, we talk about success, we talk about enduring in ministry, we talk about broadening our space, strengthening our pegs, stretching our cords. Here's some principles I think we miss. Number one, to be reproductive, you have to be receptive. To be reproductive, you have to be receptive. Receptive to what? Number one, receptive to divine direction. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. But in all your ways, consult God and he will provide the direction. I got to be receptive to where God might be leading me. Here's an example. I may desire to go down Braddock Road to get to I-95, but God may say, no, I want you to go around and I want you to take another direction. Lead me in a different way. Bring me all the way down Old Key Mill Road just to get me down to Springfield. And I say, Lord, I want to go 95. That was quicker. And God says, no, there's something I need for you to stop by and do on the Old Key Mill Road route. And that's what divine direction does. That means that there is an assignment where God is leading and God leads away from where my heart desires so that I might fulfill what God's desire is. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. 
Am I receptive? Are you receptive to God directing you? But then am I receptive? Here it is. Hold on to your seat. To God disciplining me. Am I receptive to God making me right? Because that reception to God making me right can be extremely painful. Because God's grace is so sufficient and the sovereignty as well as the omnipotence and more importantly the omniscience of God having all knowledge, knowing what I need to make me a better servant for the kingdom, God's rule or God's mode of disciplining me may be quite difficult for my heart to embrace. And Israel is in a space now where they are going to be on their way back from exile, but what they probably had a difficult time was while in exile, God was shaping them, disciplining them, getting them to a space where they were going to follow the direction of God. In fact, in exile, they may have been to a place, uh, according to Jeremiah chapter 10, that their hearts may have been extremely overwhelming, broken, or they could have been in a space where they felt wounded to the point of not being able to be cured. And that might be where you find yourself this morning. In an exilic space because, A, Perhaps you're not getting the lesson that God keeps trying to teach you, so you have to experience remedial teaching. Or B, God's led you in a space where that's the one space he wants to put you to shape you to become what God desires for you to be. But discipline suggests highly that we've gone astray and God has to bring us back in. And Jeremiah 10 says that there were some in exile who arguably felt that the wound that they had in the Babylonian exile was difficult. In fact, if you read Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, some cried out, woe to me because of my injury, my wound is incurable. You might be in a space now where you feel like, Lord, I am so low and I've been wounded so bad that I don't feel like there's any help for me where I am at all. In fact, I even wonder if the tragedy or the trauma that I've experienced in the journey, can it ever be healed? Will I ever see the light again? Because I've been so overwhelmed by darkness. The way I've been bruised by those who have bruised me, will I ever be healed to a point that I can re-enter society or re-enter the family or re-enter my community and feel like I still have something to contribute? Do I, after being wounded by someone in relationship, God, is it ever possible that I could find someone who would treat me as the king or the queen that you designed me to be? That's how wounded they felt. In fact, the text continues and says that I, uh, my wound is so incurable, truly this is a sickness and I must bear it. In other words, no matter how I try to get out, it just seems as if God ain't letting me out. But here's the, here's the connection. In Jeremiah 10, 20, they said, my tent is destroyed and all my ropes have been broken. And maybe that's where you feel right now that through this journey that you're in, through this space in life's time, whatever tent that I had, it seems like it's been destroyed and whatever held me strong and whatever held me stable, the ropes have been cut by life. And I feel as if my tent is gone and my ropes is gone and I have absolutely no stability in life at all. But yet when you read the text a little further in Jeremiah 10, they not only display that they are broken, but here's the heartbreaking element of it. When I came to church to consult the pastor or pastors, 
they were just as broke as I was. In fact, they were so out of step with God that they shattered the sheep. They scattered them all around after shattering and breaking their spirits. There it is right there in Jeremiah chapter 10. It's, it's right there. And one kind of wonders, how do I get out of this space? Because God reminds us, if you want to be reproductive, you've got to be receptive. And the key word I keep using is reproductive. See, because that's a suggestion that when God gives me, I can't hoard it. But I've got to become the conduit to which it flows through. I'm going to drop this analogy on it, and I hope I get a chance to get back and expound on it a little bit, uh, but you'll catch the picture as you keep marinating on it. Watch this. Which would you rather be, a tree or a pipe? Both can experience the flow of water. The difference is, in the pipe, it's just a thorough through. Water just flows through. And it's subject to rust and deterioration. But you can still use it to flow water. But a tree, a tree is not a fall through. Bring it down, man. A tree, according to Psalm 1, is going to take the water, and the water is going to not just flow through, but it's going to stop and supply. And it, in its supplying, it's going to bring forth abundance in terms of fruit. Mm -hmm. So, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, no citizen aware of the sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law does he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree. Watch the verb, planted. Where? By the rivers so that that water can constantly flow in the roots because as it flows through the roots, it eventually will manifest itself at the branches and fruit will begin to hang down and the fruit in its provision will not just be for the tree for the tree is saying, I always can reproduce because I am receptive to the water of God, but I'm here to bear fruit so that somebody else who's hungry on the journey, who's naked on the journey, who has need on the journey, can stop by where I am and can pull from my tree. That's why Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me, and when I was thirsty, you gave me to drink, and as much as it did it to to the least of these but you can't be reproductive until you're receptive Proverbs 12 and 1 says whoever loves discipline loves knowledge because to be receptive to God's discipline says that God is going to mold me to become all that I need to be and so I'm admonished through Hebrews 12 and 1, let us lay aside every weight. And then he argues to me, argues is not, when we talk about weight, everything that causes us a cumbrance or an encumbrance that keeps us from getting to where we need to be and it doesn't have to be a sin it could just be a habit that we really need to break because it keeps us from being where we need to be but then he had he adds not only every weight but every sin that does so easily throws us off course and let us run this race here's the second thing I'm going to tell you not only to be, to be reproductive, you must be receptive, but communion always proceeds commission. Communion always proceeds commission. Here's what I mean by that. Your life won't be altered in public until God has altered it in private. One of our challenges probably is that we stay in exile because even in that isolated space or that space where we find so uncomfortable, we're not spending communing time with God. 
Read. I knew y'all get quiet when I said that. Reading the scripture. That's why I admonish every Christian needs a devotional time every single day. I favor the morning merely because as you, before you start that long journey or whatever that day might be, God in the word can supply for you be surprised in reading a word that seems so obscure in the sense of it doesn't fit where I am for the moment. You will be surprised how God will bring out a nugget in that word to work through what you will face in that day. No, I wouldn't think no general will send his or her soldier out in the field of battle armless without a weapon and you got to fight an enemy but you got to go out armed and I don't know about you but when you spend time with God in the morning at least then I get armed with the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word of God I get armed to fight against whatever the enemy throws down the path or whatever test comes down the path that's what gives validity to the words of Jeremiah no weapon formed against you shall prosper it's because I'm armed and when I'm armed, I'm not afraid when I have to fight because I got something to fight with. The worst thing to know is you got to face an enemy and you got absolutely nothing to fight with at all. That's why David could stand before Goliath without any fear because Goliath thought that the weaponry that he had was the only weaponry you could fight a war with. But what Goliath didn't know was David had plenty of weaponry. It was called five smooth stones and a slingshot. But most importantly, the armor and the power and the momentum came from the God who sits on his throne. And whatever David needed, David got it because God gave him what he needed to face the giant. And is there anybody in here this morning can testify, I've had to face some giants in the day in my life. But when I prayed up early that morning, God gave me the grace and the strength and the power and the wisdom and the endurance to handle all of my enemies. It's because I took time to be with God in private so that when I came out in the public, people couldn't figure out how do you endure such criticism and such hatred that people, you ever have folks say things to you that were just awful and you stood there with a smile and you just moved on to the next level and later on your buddies got you in the car and said, man, how in the world did you take that? Girl, how'd you take that? And you said, I ain't worried, I ain't tripping. You want to know that? Because I know God got this under control and God made it clear to me, don't say a thing. The battle is not yours but it's the Lord's. And I just stood there and watched God work this thing out. And what they didn't tell you was three weeks later, that same person came back. Uh, can I talk with you just for a few minutes? I, I need to share something with you. That's what God does. Jeremiah 20, 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Talk to God in private. Because in order for you to be commissioned by God, God says you and I need to have communion on a regular basis. Here's the third thing I want to say. Adversity is the breeding ground for miracles. Now, I know y'all wondering when I'm going to get to the text. I'm going to get there. Just give me a few more minutes. We're going to get there. But, but here's, the, here's the foundation I got to build for you. Adversity, watch this text, is the breeding ground for miracles. Because the, I'm almost sure that the Israelites thought that 70 years into captivity was the wrong suggestion for them. What had we done? You deserve this. Well, you broke the covenant that you had with God. You ran after other gods. You replaced God with idol gods. Uh, that, that's probably pretty devastating in God's eyes. 
But did we deserve 70 years of this humiliation we're going to get in this journey? Well, you know, sometimes we make things appear worse than what they really are. Because we read Jeremiah 29, it's amazing that although they were sentenced to 70 years, in fact, read the text, I, I got a gut feeling uh, that some folk don't read all of the text. So they read a text and they take it out of context, which makes it a pretext. And in return, you miss the point altogether. See, everybody want to hear, everybody want to hear uh, verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for your calamity to give you a future and a hope. But how you going to miss verse 10? Verse 10 says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years has been done. Now, that says a couple things to me. Number one, so God is saying, you're not going to be here forever. Now, I know you're in exile now. I know my, it may be a little bit difficult, but here's my, here's my word to you. You won't stay here forever. That's, that's somebody's word right there. I know right now it's raining and there may be a tsunami and there may be a tornado and there may be a storm and it may be darkness, but it's not going to last forever. I hear the writer says in Psalm 30 and 5, weeping might endure for the night and it's nighttime and somebody's life right now but here it is joy is going to come in the morning in other words there's got to be a morning the sun will rise again but they got to reverse then he says he says when the 70 years is completed here it is I will visit you man that's anticipation God told me I might have you in that captivity right now, but I'm coming back for you. We're going to come back and rejoin ourselves again. And here's what God is saying. No matter where you are right now, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You're not going to stay there forever. And I'm going to make sure that I'm right there by your side. I will revisit you again, which says to me every now and then I feel like I'm all alone. But God always show up in time and on time in very unusual ways. But God shows up to let me know I'm not by myself read verse 10 again he says I'm going to revisit you but here's the shouting news and fulfill my good word to bring you back to this place well what place is that pastor this is before exile they're in Jerusalem He's saying, you go into exile, but here's the good news. It won't last forever. And when it's done, I'm coming back to get you and then to bring you back to where you started, right back in Jerusalem. Why? Why are you going to take that route, God? Now you need to read verse 11. For I know the thoughts the plans that I have for you. Don't read verse 11 before you read verse 10. You got to know why he set you up, where he set you up, because your setup is always God's way of setting you up for a comeback. But I got to set you up first. So what appears to be a setback is not really a setback. It's just a setup so God can help you come back to where he wants you to be. And there it is right there in the text. Don't read verse 11. Stop quoting it out of context until you read verse 10. And then verse 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you. And the plans I have for you is, I know the plans for your welfare. That's my well-being. And not for calamity because I'm going to give you a future and I'm going to give you hope. Good God Almighty. So adversity is the breeding ground for miracles. Ask Joseph. Joseph says, when his brothers, what they meant for evil, adverse, watch how God turns it to an advantage. God meant it for the good. 
because when you read the Genesis account of Joseph's life, particularly get around chapters 46, 44, 45, 46, when Joseph finally meets his brothers and they just knew for a fact once they realized who he was, once he revealed himself, that they were out. That's it. They were going to get taken out. And Joseph says, oh, no, 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 no. See, God orchestrated what you did to put me where I am because God already knew he's going to reveal to Pharaoh that he's going to have a vision that suggested seven years of a famine and seven years of abundance. But God also knew he needed someone in the space that had the power to be able to give grain to those who had need. And God also knew that you would be on the outskirts of Egypt in a famine land and you're going to need some grain at some point in time. I told you what you meant for evil, God worked it out for the good. So God sent me ahead of time in allowing me to be sold to Potiphar and then end up being yet beside Pharaoh, God sent me ahead of time to plan so that when you needed deliverance and what you meant to be as an adverse condition, God turned around and worked it to my advantage. And I'm just here to tell somebody what might look like an adverse condition for the moment. Hang in there, baby, because God is going to work all things together for the good. Ask the three Hebrew boys, they'll tell you. It was adverse when Nebuchadnezzar sought to kill them by fire, God took and kindled a fire on the inside of their hearts. And they survived the fire. That's why there's some witnesses in here this morning that can testify when folk try to burn you, God will set a fire on the inside of you and what will burn in you is joy and peace and overwhelming power. And if that ain't enough, ask Jesus. Jesus will tell you, when his enemies thought that a grave would hold him and bury him down, he only took the tomb and created a bridge to a new morning called resurrection. God can make what seems to be adverse and use it for your advantage because adversity is the ground for miracles. Now, I'm gonna skip all the rest of my sermon because I gotta get to this point right here. Isaiah 52, because I just, I just, it just realized, it just dawned on me. Don't tell them about 54 yet. They can't even handle that right now, right? Right now, you got to get them ready in 52. 52. Isaiah 52. That's where we got to be right now. I, I'm not even going to go to 54. 52. Because God is calling us, calling you, to not only stretch where you are, but in order to stretch, there are three things in chapter 52, verse 1 and 2, that he calls us to that will enable us to get prepared for what God has in store. Because here, here's the title again, because God says you gonna need more room for what I have in store for you in 2019. You gonna need more room. You don't have enough room right now. now look what the text says. Awake! Awake! Wake up! Open your eyes. When you get up in the morning, what's one of the first things you do? You stretch. And trust me, as you get older, that will become a preeminent moment in your journey. <laughs> yeah, give, give it time. It, you, you, I'm, I'm just here to tell you, once you get past 55, uh, when you get a constant visit by Arthur, he's a good friend of mine, he stops by and he just pinpoints these certain areas where joints seem to be receptive to his presence in the hand, in the knees, in the hips. And so when you get up in the morning, you got to stretch and got to get yourself together. But you got to get up first. You got to wake up. And some of you are still sleep in exile. And God's trying to shake you and wake you up. There it is right there in verse 1. Wake up, awake, awake. But if you get up, he wants us to get ourselves together, wake up. And then he says, fill in the blank 
Whatever has caused you to keep falling asleep, get over it. Tell it to get lost. And some of you are still asleep because jealousy is rocking you in its arms. Some of you are still asleep because an unforgiving spirit has captured your sleep. Some of you are still asleep is because you just can't get past the fact that you've been wounded, you've been hurt, and you're a Christian. Newsflash, it's gonna happen. Oh, I forgot to add it. And not the fact that you just got hurt, but you got hurt by another Christian. Newsflash, wake up, it's the reality. It's gonna hurt sometimes. But God said, I can't, bless you. I can't bless you if you keep sleeping all the time. Some of y'all sleep too much. I, I probably shouldn't say this because she's going to hear about it. I know she is. But my wife sleep all the time. So, Sometimes I said, I said, Barbara, you going back to sleep again? You just woke up. Her rationale is, I ain't sleep, I'm just resting. <laughs> but I man, you've been sleep for the last 12 hours. And you resting for another six? That's 18 out of 24 hours. I know, I'm going to let me leave it alone. Huh? Now listen, what I said in this room stays in this room. Don't you tell nobody nothing. And there's a lady who occupies the second pew right here to my left. When you see her sit down, you don't know nothing. In fact, I don't remember nothing Pastor Murphy said at 8 o'clock. I don't remember a single thing. Nothing. But some of us sleep too long. And while we're sleeping, the world is just going on by. God wants to enlarge us, but he can't because we sleep. Awake. Look at the next line. Awake. And then clothe yourself. Isn't that what he said? Clothe yourself. Now, you know, uh, I'm about done, but here's the thing I know is from some people, the way some people dress when they come out in public, good God Almighty, I'm not sure if they looked in the mirror before they came out. Uh, yeah, something might be wrong with the mirror. I don't know if it gives a double image. I don't know what's going on. But this text suggests to me that I want you to look at yourself before you come out. Uh, I borrowed it from the analogy that Jesus gives in the Gospels when he tells about uh, the person who wants to pray, but they pray like standing on the corner because they want everybody to see how they look when they're praying. And then Jesus says, when you do pray, don't have a sad face. Don't look like you're praying or don't look like you're in deep distress and don't look like you're in poverty and don't look like you are overwhelmingly sad, but look different. In fact, all that stuff, leave that in the secret closet with your Lord so that you and your Lord can discuss that and work that out. But this text says, God says, wake up and then clothe yourself. Look good. Come on out to the public. Make sure that I represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But deeper, deeper spiritually is what Isaiah is saying. Clothe yourself. Look at the text. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments. I know you're in exile, but look good anyway. You should be able to tell people, I don't look like what I've been through. But don't I look good anyway? I mean, I just look so good to this pitiful. I know I look like a trillion dollars. But they don't, they don't need to know what you've been through. In time, your testimony may be of value. But right now, I want you to represent, says God, who I am. Clothe yourself. Look at the text. In beautiful garments. Uh, one thing I used to love about my grandmother is poor, just as poor as poor could be. But there were two things she did every week. She washed that same dress every week and pressed that bad boy herself with that iron on the stove every single week. Same dress, going to church every Sunday, but clean. 
And grandmama used to teach us that even if you have the same clothes, as long as they clean and pressed, look good. In fact, it kind of freaks me out now because I saw a young lady here at church a couple weeks ago. She had on these jeans that had all these holes in them. All these holes right down here at the pant, you know, right down the thigh level. And, and I say, what, what kind of pant? Yeah, see they're right there. There you go. What? I said, what is that? Is that what you wear? She said, yeah, yeah, this, 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 is, this is the style, Pastor Murphy. I said, style? We used to call them play clothes when I was growing up. That's what you wore when you start ripping holes in pants and put pads on. We call them play clothes. When you came home from school, mama made it clear, get out of them school clothes and put them, clay, them play clothes on, go outside and play. Yeah, now I understand, because I decided not to just take the child's word. I thought I'd go to the mall and check it out. Do you not know I found out that these jeans is a hundred plus dollars for some darn holes in them? I said, I could have just bought me a regular pair of jeans, went home for $49.99, took my scissors and cut some holes, and it would have been the same thing. But they told me no, because they ripped a certain way, and you got to know how to bleach the pants where they look faded. I said, man, that just don't make no sense for me. I'm not wearing that out in public, because that looks awful. All your thigh hanging out. I don't want to see your thigh. That's not for me to see anyway. Why you don't have that covered up? Because that's the style, Pastor Murphy. I said, well, it ain't my style. See my leg right here? It's covered all up. That's not a beautiful garment to me. But it is. It's God's way of saying, contemporize yourself and look as glorious as you can because I want you to remember from whom all blessings flow. Some of us come out looking like who knows what. I don't know. I just don't know what it is that we look like. I just sit there sometimes like, did you see yourself when you came out the house this morning? You look a wreck. You look awful. And you know, I, I, try to, I try to take a little pride in the way I look, particularly when I come to church. You want to know why? Because I know when folks see me, they're going to say the same thing. Didn't Pastor look a wreck this morning? You say, look, it's awful. Because you know that we talk about each other like that behind each other's back. Come on, you might as well say, man, I know I'm on the right street. Clothe yourself. But, but, but Isaiah has something more deeper. Clothe yourself, he says, not only the beauty of your garments, but, but in strength. See that in verse 1? Clothe yourself in your strength, Zion. Where's your strength? Where's your power? Where's your sustaining grace? No matter what condition you find yourself, you better remember who keeps you, who provides for you. We, oh, I was shouting last week, the other night when we were, I had about 40 or 50 other pastors, we were just talking about people in furlough and one guy told me half of his church were furloughed. And when he said half of my church is furloughed, man, and when we missed the Sunday because of the snow, he said, man, you know, that's devastating to us because I got to pay mortgage at the end of the month, and I, I don't know what we're going to do. And it may have been wrong, but you should have saw me. I was just gloating like a mug. Just, what about you, Murph? I said, man, I have five people who were furloughed in my church. Five. That's what I said. Amen. Just five, man. I, I said, but most importantly, bro, <laughs> I don't have a mortgage. <laughs> no, nah, man. I said, God gave us such favor. We actually paid off our mortgage during a recession because grace is that sufficient. I said, I can't help it, but that's how good God has been. No, we didn't know starting the mortgage campaign how it's going to end up. But I tell you, we finished ahead of time, and it's because God is so good. And we had to trust him, but I kept on clothing myself in righteousness and truth. And I believed by faith that God was going to make this thing work somehow in some way. And as they sit there, we're gloating on the fact that they had to come up with some way to pay the mortgage. I just said, I feel you. I mean, I just really feel you. But I don't have that problem right now. I'm just shouting that God enabled us to be able to make it through without having 
in that challenge and with just five people who were furloughed, we praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because we recognize the strength. All my help comes from the Lord. All right, then I'm done. I got to let y'all go. Look at verse two. Wake up. Clothe yourself. Here's my final word, Bishop, Bishop Taylor. Shake yourself. It's right there in the text. Shake yourself from the dust. In other words, Isaiah says, some of y'all been under so long that you're covered by the residue to which you've been hurt by. Shake yourself from the dust. Can you get up from where you are? Look at the text. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up. That's a level of imperative to me. Isaiah said, don't lay there too long. You know what happens when you lay long? You lay in one spot too long. It happened to my father when he was in the final of his days. You lay in one spot too long, your body starts to develop sores. You're not turned enough. I got to think of, man, the spiritual application of that. Because some people got so many sores laying in the wrong spot for so long that they can't even move now. But Jeremiah says in chapter 8, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there not a physician there? He cries out, why not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? He's speaking of the spiritual nature of the sinfulness of Israel. But yet, at the same time, I wonder, does God have a balm that can heal you and can heal your sores in the dust of where you are? He does. Because he says, not only rise up from the dust, but look what he says. When you get up, loose the chains from around your neck. Get yourself out of prison. It's a bad thing when God opens the door, unlocks the door, opens the door for you to come out, to be delivered, and you turn around and go back in and then shut the door and reach out and lock it yourself. Some of us struggle with self-incarceration. And God says, all that I have for you, I can't give it to you because in that small cell that you keep living in, you don't have enough room. So I need for you to wake up. I need for you to clothe yourself in your strength and beautiful garments. I need for you to rise from the dust and get that chain off of your neck. That's a salvation message as well. Because God says one reason why you stay in the sinful condition in terms of being an unbeliever disconnected from God is because you're asleep and dead in your sins. He says you remain that condition because you're not only dead in sleep, but I can't get you to rise up to the newness of life that God has in store for you through what Christ has done at the cross. Redemption. And I can't get you to shake off the old mentality, the old man, because you are captivated by, because it keeps paying you a wage for the wages of sin is death. Here I am trying to offer you the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul says God has made it so simple. It's an easy process. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's my go-between right there. John uses a big theological term. That's my propitiation. That's the substitute who stood in my place at Calvary. When I embrace that, embrace what Christ has done for me. Paul says, in confessing with my mouth and believing in my heart, not only that, but Jesus died 
that that old life may die. But he adds this, that God has raised him from the dead. And I want to believe this morning that everybody sitting in these pews, you are examples of resurrection that God has raised from the dead. You may not act like it, but I believe you are alive and well because grace has brought you up once again this morning. And that belief, says Paul, thou shall be rescued, saved. For with the heart man believes, but with mouth confession is made. Lord, we want all that you have to give us this morning.